Welcome to Kibi on Liberty. Matt. Matt. You're back. I am. You're back. I'm very happy to be back. Yes. Um, I, I had meant to watch the, the conversation we had, which I think was, was like three years ago or something. Yeah, I've lost like completely that. sense of time since they, they locked me in my house. And I, I, I don't even know what decade it is anymore. Oh, boy. But it was forever ago. Seems and like it. so much has happened. And um, we'll, we'll start with just, just announcing your new book. But I think, I think the book itself sort of documents your, your own evolution, progression, war against the entire um, poverty industrial complex, um, Karl Marx and everyone else. You're going to defeat them all. And the book is called... The Heart of a Cheetah. How we've been lied to about African poverty and what it means for human flourishing. So I love the the cheetah mm-hmm. as as a metaphor mm-hmm. that that it's not just a metaphor perhaps for your personal story, mm-hmm. but for Africa itself. Yeah. Um, the strength, the persistence, yeah. the potential. Yeah. yeah. Talk about the cheetah. Yeah. So the cheetah, the name of the book and uh, referring to the cheetah is really in honor of George Ayite, Ghanaian economist, whom we lost unfortunately earlier this year. And. Uh, George literally changed my life. I mean, he's the reason why I'm even here talking with you and, um, you know, sharing my understanding of the situation with you all. And so George Aite, basically, the first time I met him, it was in 2007 in Tanzania, in Arusha, during TED Global. It was the first TED Global done in Africa. And uh, I was one of the 100 TED Fellows. We were the, we were the original, you know, uh, TED Fellows, us, the Africans. And what we all had in common is uh, mo- many of us um, were entrepreneurs and the doers of the continent, uh, young, obviously. And uh, I remember this uh, this. George was on stage and he was talking and everything he was saying finally was making sense to me. Because before that, you know, when people talk about Africa, it was always about this aid thing. Is aid good? Not good? Um, Not even not good. It was like aid. Aid was the de facto, you know, set up for the the only paradigm. That's it. That's it. So but people like me who especially I was in, you know, in business. And most importantly, I wanted something more for my continent. So to reduce it to aid. And even when you went to so-called economic conferences, what they were talking about was aid. How are we doing the aid? Should we do it differently? Blah, blah, blah. But that's it. And, but George was there and he was, dis- he was deconstructing everything. He was, he was showing how aid has not worked, not only not worked, but b- was keeping you know, bad leaders in place, just all of that. And he said, he said the future of Africa lies on the back of the cheetahs. These are the fast runners of Africa. It's you guys. And he's talking to us. And so he's the one who baptized us, the cheetahs. Mm-hmm. And he said that the future of our continent lied on our backs. I will never forget that. And it was so refreshing. It was so, and it fits so much, um, you know, the solution that I, that I wanted for my Africa. And he said, so he compared us to the cheetahs, uh, to the hippos. He said the hippos are these, these, these bureaucrats, these, these people who have been enjoying the aid and uh, this foreign aid, this foreign aid, uh, government to government, um, you know, aid. And he said, we, we are the future of Africa. And I think we heard him. 
in that room, we heard him. And so that's in uh, that's why we call ourselves the cheetahs. He said, we are the cheetahs. And actually, George wrote the foreword for my book. And uh, in it, he said something that um, will stay with me. He said that um, I was his uh, prayer come true. So, yeah. and uh, yeah, so my the book really is a way to try and continue George's work. Uh, he took a lot of errors on our back, on, on our on our behalf. And um, yeah, so it's about time we try to expose it. So the cheetahs, uh, beyond that, cheetah is my favorite animal in the whole world. He is so, the cheetah is so beautiful. I don't know if you've seen one in real life. I mean, the, the beauty of this animal, that it, this animal is so perfect in my mm. mind, that when you look at this animal, even if you don't believe in God, you have no choice but to believe in God because it's such perfection. And um, the speed, the, the, it's the fastest animal on land, you know. Um, and the way that cheetahs also, when you see a coalition of cheetahs, because that's what we call a group of cheetahs, a coalition of cheetahs uh, hunting, the way they hunt is just it's so fascinating. You'll see couple cheetahs laying around over there or free and you would think oh they're just having you know they're just chilling talking to each other and then you see another one over there another one over there like very kind of far scattered and you don't think they're connected right but man when the hunt happens you know that each one of them is connected because one of them starts for run the other one picks it up at some point and it's just it's so coordinated it goes super fast but i love it because 80% of their run of the hunt is in preparation and the preparation of it seems very calm quiet it's like they're not even preparing but when they go 20% of the time is the run and that's it and I think it goes from 0 to 60 in 3 seconds it's so crazy so that's us Okay, we're going to just focus on the cheetah metaphor for the next hour because this is a beautiful <laughs> thing and mm -hmm. And I, I was telling you earlier, it's a joke on the show, which isn't a joke at all, that, that cats are very libertarian. Very. And you're, you're describing, let's take this metaphor just a little bit further, mm -hmm. uh, very individualistic. And mm -hmm. that's, that's the rap yeah. on cats is yeah. that they're, they stand alone. But you're describing uh, cooperation community yeah. Yeah. amongst all of these radical individualists. That's right. That's right. And that's, that's how the, 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 the species survives. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. So I, li I like this metaphor. We won't even talk about dogs because I'm convinced <laughs> they're communists. <laughs> I love dogs, but you know, yeah, it you might, might be, be true. It might something. be true. You might be onto something. <laughs> but the, the the context of of George's work, and you mentioned you mentioned this in the book, um, and I don't know the entire history, but I would imagine at one point, as a free market economist in Africa, he he literally stood alone against the, the, the Marxist intelligentsia yes. that you go in great detail yes, in the book. Yes, yes, Yeah, this is what I mean um, when I say that George took so many arrows. And the reason why I respect George so much is because he truly, you can tell, I mean, the, you, you have to be an independent thinker. You have to be a critical thinker to be, um, to be growing up and to be at, the, at, your, uh, at, um, your, your, at your prime time during a time where socialism is en vogue, where everyone who is respectable is socialist, right? And this is the ideas that are running around you. And for you to be like, this makes no sense. You have to be someone who is really a critical thinker. And that's what George was. And this is where really my respect for him came from. And I said to him, I asked him, because I think I have the last interview with George. Um, it's going to be released. We had a two-hour conversation. But I asked him, I said, Professor, why, why, how, why did you start looking in a place where, you know, that went completely against the grain? 
what what happened he's like because my god it didn't add up because he's like my my lived experience and what my own eyes were seeing did not match with what that ideology is telling us because in his case um what he was talking about is the fact that um especially after the end of colonizations, and I always do it this way because are we truly at the end of colonizations, there is something called neocolonization happening. Uh, but on that one, you know, just to piss off some of my <laughs> African friends who love to sit there and just complain that colonization is the reason why we're still poor, and I say, no, it's not. And then they're like, well, well, who even said we're no longer in colonization? That's a whole other conversation. I'm sure we'll get into that at some point. But anyway, uh, George, <clears throat> after the end of so-called colonizations, <clears throat> Sorry. <clears throat> after after the end of so-called colonization, or at the end of so-called colonization, what we had was basically mostly all of these liberators of these African nations who actually have drank in the Marxist socialist ideology um, of the you know within the past deck within the, the decade before yeah you know we're here now talking about late 50s early 60s that's when most of our you know countries uh, gained their independences but really that's I mean I don't have to tell you what was going on during that time I don't have to tell you where you know the battle of um, these two ideologies between you know freedom using uh, capitalism as its economic system was facing off with you know um, various forms of statism, you know, and socialism, they, those two ideologies were facing off. And um, our people had sided with the Marxist socialists of their times because primarily they, uh, and Lenin is the one who had uh, been very clever in terms of uh, building an amalgam between, uh, you know, slavery, capitalism, and even racism. That's when all of that started to be added together. And so our people then looked at it and said, well, you know, the enemy of my friend, the, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Uh, you guys seem to be the ones who are also fighting for, um, you know, uh, against racism. And it is true. It is true. During those times, the, the socialists, um, you know, were the ones also fighting uh, against uh, racism. And so I have to give it to them. And I believe that so many of them were really, um, really had the right intentions. I, I really do believe that. But as we all know, the pave, the, the road to, to, to hell is paid with good intentions. Yeah. So, so we, 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 we became bedfellows, literally. Um, and so they started and W.E.B. Dubois played a big role in that as well. Um, so there was this famous Congress, the Fifth Pan-African Congress that happened uh, in um, England. It was the last such Congress before independences. And they were all there. You know, the one from my country, um, Kenyatta was there. All of them were there. And uh, basically, this was like a big uh, celebration of uh, Marxist socialism and that this is the way forward and this is what we're going to do. And so um, this is how, sadly, many African nations started on their journey to so-called uh, freedom with leaders who basically had drunken the Marxist socialist Kool-Aid. And so I want to point to that fatidic moment uh, with my fellow Africans and to anyone who cares about African and African prosperity, because the minute we went for that, we decided for the rest of our fate 60 some years later, especially because we never 
reconsidered that uh, legacy. We never, to this day, we have yet to reconsider. And that's what I'm trying to do. That's what the book is trying to do. The book is trying really, uh, 80% of the book is spent on trying and getting the record straight in terms of a diagnosis. We want to make sure that we finally have a right diagnosis as to why this continent is still the poorest 60 some plus years later. And the right diagnosis, I argue, is Africa is the poorest region in the world <clears throat> because it happens to be the most overregulated region in the world. What that means is if poverty is your problem, and we're talking, I just said Africa is the poorest region in the world, despite its riches and its young population, average age 19 years old, it's insane. I think it's a great thing, but it's gonna, this is going to backfire if we don't do the right thing of creating hundreds of millions of jobs within the next decade, right? Um, but until further notice, as far as I'm concerned, humans are a blessing, as far as I'm concerned, for where I come from. So I'm not one of those people who say we have too many people or whatever. I believe our Earth can take care of everybody. And uh, for me, that's not, a, that's not, that's not something that I, that I want to even argue. But going back... The solution to poverty is prosperity. It's not poverty alleviation, which, by the way, is what most of the world has seemed to, set, to have settled on when it comes to Africa. Because all I see is poverty you know, alleviation, poverty alleviation, poverty alleviation. We only talk of poverty alleviation or poverty eradication, but I'm not interested in any of that stuff. What we should be focused on, the solution to poverty is prosperity. So I want to hear about prosperity building. And if you want to talk about prosperity building, who builds prosperity? Entrepreneurs. Last time I checked, it's entrepreneurs. And so what do entrepreneurs need? A good business environment. As with anything, if you want something to thrive, give it the right environment. And so pure, simple, right? Well, except that when you look at that, you find that African um, Africa is the region in the world with the most regulations when it comes to business. Basically, our nations are the ones who offer the worst business climates to their, in, to their entrepreneurs in the world. Therefore, we're poor. And no one, almost no one talks of this, Matt. No one. And so in my, I'm sitting there thinking, if you want to solve a problem, don't you first have to get the diagnosis right? I think we do. But when it comes to the diagnosis of why is Africa poor, you could line up 100 people here, African or non-African, and you will get 100 different reasons as to why that is the case. And it's funny because, in a way, I have done a little survey. You see, some of my most um, uh, viral tweets or whatever has to do with, uh, you know, like when you ask just, why is Africa so poor? You say you don't try to guide them or anything. Why is Africa so poor? You take a majority um, African... And you, I can point you to this because it's in the way you ask it. In the way you ask it, you'll, you'll trigger Africans or non-Africans. So what you'll see is a primarily African audience or responders, comments all over the place, but they, but they have usual suspects. Yeah, it's racism, colonialism. They're stealing our resources. Um... They, they just don't want us to thrive because if we thrive and they go down, you know, there's some vision of a world. And so you hear all of that. On the, if it's primarily white people, you know, speaking. So if you're looking at folks more 
uh, on the on the left in this group of non-African, especially if they happen to be maybe white, what you'll see is if they tend to be more on the left, they'll bring up the same stuff the Africans brought up, right? From racism to all of that stuff. That's what they think. And then if they happen to be more on the right end of the spectrum, then them, their usual suspects are, you guys are stupid, the IQ fury. Um, you guys are barbarians. Uh, you guys are lazy. You guys are just over there popping too many babies for your own good. It's funny. It, it, it's so interesting. But Matt, I look at all of this nonsense because truly on both sides, I find it to be nonsense, honestly. Uh, whether you're talking about the IQ fury or you're talking about, you know, people saying that, you know, white people wake up every day thinking about how they're going to mess up with black people or whatever. And now does that mean that there are some racist people? Yeah. Does that mean that we have some stupid Africans? Yeah, but no more stupid Africans than we have stupid, you know, uh, Asians or we have stupid, you know, white people of wherever they come from. Stupidity, I like to say, is one of the best, you know, dispersed <laughs> thing in the world, you know, among us humans. So whatever. But um, but you see what is so interesting is literally no one brings up. It's because it's one of the regions where it's the hardest damnest hardest place to do business no one links up to the to the entrepreneurs and how hard they have it compared to everyone else and it's all well reported and um you know uh documented in economic index um in economic freedom indexes no one no none of these two sides and then you wonder why we are where we are yeah. the diagnosis is completely invisible to most people and then of course if it's invisible to most people. And so what they all advance is, in a way, in my mind, the, what do you call it, the, the symptoms of poverty. You know, if you're going to be poor, of course it's going to be easier for people to, in, right now, do what we call neocolonize you. You know, all these things that we complain about. Yeah, France is still using our resources on the, on the, on the cheap end. Um, China is, is doing this to us and uh, Russia, blah, 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 whatever. Everybody's always doing something to us. Well, it's easy to be abused. It's easier to be abused when, you have, when, you have, when, you, when you're not prosperous. When you're poor, people trample on your rights. It's, 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 you see it everywhere. It doesn't make it right, but it is a fact. And so not understanding that even there again, this poverty is there. And a friend of mine, I call him a friend of mine because I feel like I, I know him, but he's just somebody I appreciate. Uh, Remy Adekoya, a Polish-Nigerian um, professor based out of the UK, but, you know, grew up, I think he was born in, I think he spent some time in Nigeria anyway. But he wrote this amazing book that just came out this year called It's Not About Whiteness, It's About Wealth. And he's so right. So right, and the book really connects it. I've always intuitively known that, but his book gives me all the ammo that I need to connect those relations. If we were no longer so darn poor, it would be a very different story. Including, I I will go on record with this: eighty percent of racism as we know it against black people would just go poof in the air. Yeah. At Kibbe on Liberty, freedom is a lifestyle 24-7, something you live and breathe and wear every day. If that describes you, you need the very best Liberty swag in the market today, just like this shirt I happen to be wearing. Go to freethepeople.org slash KOL and check out our exciting merch. 
you too can love liberty and look cool. You you talk about the the patronizing nature of these narratives, like it's not my fault, it's somebody else's fault, or it's inherently uh, built into African people. And uh, you, you tell a very moving story at the beginning of the book about, about one of your employees who bought into it. Mm-hmm. She says, are we... Inferior. Maybe we're inferior. Yeah. Maybe we can't do this. Yes, yes. And you know, it's so funny because I was just coming... Um, I was just coming uh, on my, uh, my Uber ride over here. Uh, it was uh, a brother of mine, you know, from... Um, so him, he was from Ivory Coast. And so we were talking. And I told him, give me your number because I'm going to want to interview you because soon I'm going to start doing some of these interviews because it's really important for me that we really help our people go to the other side of this narrative, you know, that we have been fed so much that it's almost part of us by now. You know, it's almost like I wouldn't need a big electroshock for people to be like, what? What happened? Um, So when... So he was talking to me about this um, this uh, this new company, this company that he has. It's an e-commerce type of company, and so we were talking about it. And uh, you know, he was even mentioning to me that um, you know, when our when our other brothers and sisters know that he's driving an Uber, some of them are making fun of him. You know, being like, why do you have to? Why are you driving an Uber? Maybe you should go get a job instead. If if your company is not, he's like, I'm driving an Uber so that I can make the money, so that I can um, put it into the marketing of my company. So he's very, he knows what he's doing, you know, and he will, and he's giving himself the meaning, the the the, the means to his ambitions. He'll do whatever it takes that's honest to get a job so he can finance the business that he's doing. So his goal is very clear. He knows he's not going to be an Uber driver forever. And there is a reason why he's doing it. So he can finance his company. Uh, when others are sitting there and be like, well, no one wants to invest in my company. I went and I tried to fundraise and no one would give me money. And you see, they're racist. That's why they're not doing it. If I was white, maybe I would get the funding. But you see how it all goes. Here's this guy. And he's like, I'm going to go drive my Uber. And he's, we had this great talk. And then at some point he was telling me, he's like, you know, when he started uh, his e-commerce, he, one of his friends um, laughed and told him, oh, <laughs> uh, in French, he, he quoted, he told me this this way. He said in French, he said, his African friend, probably from Ivory Coast, black like him, African, said, oh, mais le e-commerce, c'est pour les nègres. So e-commerce is for niggers. That's pr- what his friend told him. And he said, you see how, how we think of ourselves? You see how we talk of ourselves? And because there's so many things that all of a sudden it's like, oh, white people do that. Why is it that all the good things are white people, things that white people do? I refuse that premise. You see, when I was about to leave Senegal, my grandma told me, she said, whatever difference you're going to run into over there, remember that these are still human beings. You're a human being. Whatever they're doing, it doesn't matter how great it is. You can do the same, if not better. Because you're a human being as well. Period. Done. So that's the thing. This narrative, we see it in so many things. You happen to be on time. Oh, you're so white. All of that stuff. But at the same time, we're complaining when, you know, um, I don't know if you remember that Smithsonian sign a while ago, a few years ago, saying uh, white supremacy is to be white. So you see how things start to look weird sound weird and it's almost like we make this crap ours eventually at some point but i am going to fight that until the, the cows come home Seriously. it's fast it's fascinating um the same cheetah 
is in the Ivory Coast. He comes to America and he, he's immediately unleashed there you go. this entrepreneurial. Entre That's right. I can't say this French word, entrepreneurship. Entrepreneurship, yeah. Um, he is. Uh, He's immediately thinking, I own and control my own future, mm -hmm. but but it's my responsibility, mm -hmm. and I'm going to work my ass off and do that. Mm -hmm. um, he proves your point. Yeah, he proved my point. But the thing is, the same cheetah, um, there are things that are making it easier for him to be a cheetah yeah. when he's here than back home. Back home, we do have some cheetahs who are working really hard and making amazing lives for themselves. And... Uh, I am here to support them and I'm here to encourage them. But the point we're trying to make is wherever Shidex came from, we have millions more. Yeah. And behind them, hundreds of millions of jobs. Remember, those are the jobs we need to create so that this young population of 19 years old of average, and by 2050, one out of every four people walking this earth will be African. That's, that's who we're creating these jobs for. Yeah. Yeah. So you have, um, let's talk about your, this is not a small project you've taken on. You understand that because right. you have um, everything that colonialism did mm -hmm. to break Africa. Yep. Um, the last vestige of colonialism, I would call it almost intellectual colonialism, which is the exportation of Marxist from yep. elite mm -hmm. French universities, mm -hmm. the same people that taught Pol Pot yep. um, to murder one in to four murder, yep. of Cambodians. Mm -hmm. um, and now you have... Uh, Poverty, Poverty Inc., the Poverty Industrial Complex, that is inherently sort of uh, patronizing. Mm -hmm. Like, you guys can't possibly lift yourselves out of poverty, so let us. Yeah. It's a new form of central planning, really is. in a sense. Um, how do you break that, that vicious cycle? Because the, you're talking about generations of people um, being convinced that they can't possibly do for themselves. That's right, that's right. You see, Matt, I have a philosophy in life um, because I'm a warrior, obviously. And if when you're a warrior, you have to use strategy. And I think trying to use all of your energy to push against something, it's a losing proposition. <laughs> so instead, I prefer to use what they call gravity, you know. And the way I do that is... Um, in, it's a very simple way. It's what I call this concept of the island of excellence. Build it, make your point. Show, don't tell. Obviously, I'm doing a lot of telling because I do think there are people... Because the reason why I'm doing a lot of telling is because I am also sending... I'm putting, uh, putting a stake in the ground with bright lights on, <laughs> you know... Uh, showcasing, I mean, broadcasting a message. What I'm doing right now, and that's why this book is here, and that's why over the last year I started becoming serious about, you know, really taking the gospel out there as to what the right diagnosis as to why this continent is the poorest in the world and 20% of the book being spent uh, on solutions. Um, I am broadcasting big time now because what I'm doing is I'm trying to find or I'm trying to make sure that the one to 5% of the people that are ready for this journey find me and that I find them. That's the only people I'm looking for. You see, when people think about some major problem and they're like, oh, how do I start? Well, you start at step number one. In this case, for me, step number one is put your stake on the ground, put the fury down on the ground, and 
broadcast it as wide as possible because I want the person who is even on the other end of the world, I don't care what that person looks like, whether they're African, non-African, whatever they are, but they truly care about Africa. If nothing else, they care about uh, a better world and knowing that a better world can only work if everyone in that world is doing better, you cannot be doing great in Japan and people are doing poorly in Africa and think you're going to be fine forever because you're so far away. No, that's, it's going to get to your shores. Something, it's, you know, we, we are in a global village, okay? So anyway, I'm broadcasting it wide so that that 1% to 5% of the people can find me. And why do I say 1% to 5%? Because study shows that it takes only 1% to 5% of a population to change the world for good or for bad. It's very scary, but it's also super promising. Scary because, yeah, it takes a few people to get us to Nazi world. And just, but just like it takes us to a few people to get us to the end of, you know, uh, slavery or end World War II, right? Um, I, I just, um, when I say to, to end World War II and saying 1% to 5%, it's the people who are thinking in their mind, there's got to be a way to fight this off. Not like the amount of people that had to go and, and, and fight, because that's a big number. But the people who, f who say, we believe in this idea. We believe that this idea, you know, is right, and we need to work on it. Ideas matter. But it's only few people who latch onto an idea. Like, like George, somebody has to go first. Yeah, somebody has to go first. Somebody has to go exactly. first. Exactly. So that's what I look for. I'm looking for those people. We're, we're trying to find each other. Yeah. And then when we find each, as we find each other, we get to work on what I call the island of excellence. So, in, oops, sorry. So, in this case, what we do is the creation of startup cities. These are basically next generation um, um, special economic zones that happen to offer the best business environments that are. We're talking here about business environments that are as good, as, if not better, than Singapore or Denmark. So what Strip away the regulations, the exactly. taxes, the, the, the land use, the, the, all the, of those the, barriers. All of these barriers. So the way we think about the business environment, so these zones have their own law and governance when it comes to commercial law. When it comes to commercial law, uh, you basically are just saying, if this land is where it is right now, because it happens to provide the worst business environment to its creators, to its prosperity builders, then we need to find a solution. And um, when you look at law and governance, all of that, the best way to describe it to people who might be listening to us is look, think about it as an, uh, your country as a computer or like a microphone or whatever, and then think about the laws that rule it as your operating software. And we all know there are some operating software that just suck and others that just like, you're on. So this is technology. It's the best way to think about it is technology. And not don't think about it as something polit like a political battle because then it's just nonsense. It never ends. But I, because I would like to think that uh, all of us could agree that no one wants to be running on bad technology, on a bad software. I know no one who's telling me, I don't want the latest software. I don't want the most you know, um, efficient software. Everybody wants it. And that's really what the law really truly is at the end of the day. But now when you are in a big, in, in a big, um, in a country w that has been re running on this bad technology for so long, uh, but running that bad technology, you always have people who get to win from that bad technology. In this case, we call them, these are the cronies, mm -hmm. right? The people who are, you know, gov the, the, gov the government and the people who they're friends with. 
So think about the cronies. I know somebody in government, whatever, so I get a special deal. I get all the, the public markets that are coming in and because, you know, my uncle is a minister of this or my, uh, my, uh, my girlfriend is uh, the, 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 you know, the, the sister of um, this minister or that president or whatever, you get all the deals. And also, you know, all of a sudden, like, you know, they're seeing it right now, I think it's in Zimbabwe, where all of a sudden many uh, public, transportations ha public transportation have been outlawed. And uh, why? Then you trace it back, straight back. To whom? To some minister. It turns out this works for them because, hey, they have a, they have a, a bus company and they want it to be now the new law that um, you can't use anything else but this thing. Who benefits directly? You see, that's crony. That's not business right there. This is crony. By the, by the way, it's kind of socialism in practice because <laughs> the, the ideal... Mm -hmm. Um, is impossible and unworkable. So what happens is that the people in power just feed off of the rest exactly. of exactly. everybody else. Exactly. So so that's what you have. So when you've been running on a bad software for so long, you always find a few people who actually benefit from the status quo. They are, and they have, um, you know, this, this interest that if you want to take it out, you're going to have to go to war with them. And even if you have a president or somebody within the government who is willing to change things, it's a lot of forces to fight. And it's very muddy, very murky. If I was any of his president, I actually would, I would be like, well, I hear it. I would like to do something different, but it's hard. I can't take them on. I can't take them on. That's why the zone is great. These zones are great because what you're doing is you're saying, we're not going to... We're not going to mess up. We're not going to challenge the current status quo because it's too many things to fight, including the people. Sometimes these citizens are just like, you know, it's the weirdest thing about they, humans. They, they believe it's the only way it can <laughs> yeah. be. Yes. Yeah. yeah it's, so, it's the weirdest thing about humans. But the thing is, my job is not to go to war and use all my strength to push against that. Yeah. Instead, you have this zone where you're not bothering anybody. There is really literally, most of the time, there's nothing going on there. It's a rather barren plot of land. Um, people have decided there's nothing worthy there. That's why they're prim primarily not there. And you see that all over the continent, you know, people being in the big capital cities or the antenna cities around them. And then the countryside is more or less empty, oftentimes, because there's nothing there. So there, though, you work with the government. And the government saying, here, we're going to give it, we're going to give you um, autonomy, especially when it comes to the regulatory system that we're going to use so that you can have uh, autonomy in a commercial law so that you can uh, put in place the best business environment. And from that place, talent and money is always attracted to the right environment. Then you watch people come. You watch, you know, the entrepreneurs come. Investors following them. They're creating jobs. And before you know it, there is a thriving economy over there that technically took nothing away from the rest of the, of the, of the country and the other oligarchs. They can continue doing whatever they're doing. We're not taking public, you know, public, uh, you know, off. We're not winning public offer, anything like that. And eventually at some point what they're seeing is not only we didn't challenge them on anything, but on top of that, we actually even become a bigger market for them. Now they can also sell to people here because they now there's people here, they're making money, all of that stuff. So they're growing their market. And eventually, in interacting with us, they're starting to find, gee, it is so much easier to do business over here than the crazy way we have to do it here. Because here, yeah, I might be benefiting from, the, from, the, from the, my, my friend in government, but guess what? I'm his slave, which is true. 
I mean, I don't have to, we know what happens to all the oligarchs in, in Russia that don't do, you know, what uh, the, the Russian president wants them to do. All of a sudden, their money disappears. They're on call. They have to, I mean, they're on walking on eggs all the time. It's a lot of uh, slip and falls out exactly. of windows. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Slipping falls and windows, especially lately it's the windows, right? Yeah. And so, I mean, without going so extreme on our side, but still, you're never free. Right. You're never free. You can't say what you need to say. You can't stand for what you need to stand for. These are human beings too. They're just doing with what they you, have. You don't own your own future. They don't own their own future. So all of a sudden, they're seeing here, oh my God. I can actually still make my money, make it in a way that's safe and, um, you know, uh, secure for myself and not to have to respond to anybody, but just to the market. And eventually them too gradually start to change. And this is, you see how from that little island of excellence, eventually it will radiate out back because I believe in um, build something great and let the people who want to, to, to go for it, go for it. And eventually that's how I think the change is going to start to happen and all of a sudden on the continent, Voila, we have turned the corner. Yeah. And this can be done in our lifetime. I can see this. If God grants me a few more decades and we get to work right now, which we are, we can see Africa become prosperous in our lifetime. So you, um, the experiment in this goes all the way back to your first business venture mm -hmm. in Senegal. And you, you, were, you were born in Senegal you eventually moved to France and Germany, then France, and then Germany the U.S. and the U.S. Um, tell a little bit of that story because I have to say your your personal story and particularly um, your obstinance and stubbornness <laughs> and running with the boys instead of um, playing a traditional um, role as a as a little girl. It reminds me a little bit of Dagny Taggart. <laughs> Um, from Atlas Shrugged mm. because she also was playing with trains instead of dolls and <laughs> and she wanted to build something. Mm -hmm. Give people some of that background because like starting a business and then thinking about in an autonomous economic zone and then thinking about a free Africa, mm -hmm. it, there's, there's a logic to this. Right, right. I think that for me, um, and this is why I will always encourage um, um, parents, to, I, I'm very much for that's why I love the free cho um, uh, the school choice movement going on in the U.S. right now. I um, basically I was blessed, and when I say this, I anger some people as well. When I say I was blessed to not go to school when I was a little girl, you know, it's like how can you say that? Everybody's fighting so that kids can have access to education. Blah blah blah. I'm like, define education. Define education. So is education? You go sit on a chair and listen to some person because they happen to be an adult just uh, telling you things that you're just repeating back and forth, you know, and uh, putting stuff on a piece of paper that you most of the time don't even understand Cin what's going cinder on. Cinderblock prisons where it, they I indoctrinate mean, right, you. where you indoctrinate them. Yeah. My grandma instead was, you know, I did not want to go. So, so basically right after... Thank you for joining me today on Kibbe on Liberty and for being part of our fiercely independent audience. Every week, my organization, Free the People, partners with Blaze TV to bring you this show. My guests bring smart perspectives on everything from current events to timeless philosophical debates. If you like what you hear, go to freethepeople.org slash KOL and support Kibbe on Liberty so we can continue to produce these honest conversations with interesting people. Now, let's get back to it. When I was born, 
right after breastfeeding me, my parents uh, made the decision and journey that so many African parents have made before them and so many have made after them. Some get to emigrate under, you know, safe circumstances like they were and some don't. Many don't. As a matter of fact, today, every single day, this morning, I w every day I, c I talk to you, I can tell you that a boat, because in this case, many people in Senegal, but it's really across the continent, um, whether they're going looking for work out, um, outside of the continent or outside of their borders, but within the rest of the continent, because there's a lot of migration going on also within the continent, and the problems are everywhere the same. Um, so my parents made the decision that... Um, they wanted they were going to emigrate to secure us a better life and uh and in this case it meant just better jobs you know and so they were lucky that they emigrated under under safe circumstances and they decided though not to take me with them because you know it was highly adventurous they didn't know what they were going to find on the other side if it was going to work not work so keep me stable and only move me when things are secure on the other end. So they went and eventually things became secure for them and they called for me. But in between, I was left home in Senegal to be raised by my grandma. And clearly I did not want to go to school. You know, I, I grew up in a family compound. We where call this free range now. <laughs> yeah, I was a free range kid, really. Yeah. So, you know, I grew up in a family compound. Everybody around the village, you know, knows me. I know them, whatever, you know, and we're like, I'm surrounded by family members anyway and the friends of the family. And so, yeah, in the morning, you know, I'm like, I didn't want to go. I did not want to go to school. So my, my, my grandma didn't bother trying to send me to school or whatever. So what I was doing is pretty much hanging out all day long, hanging out with uh, and my, my, my little group was a pack of boys. And my whole life has always been like that. I mean, don't take me wrong. I do have friends that are ladies, but my my comfort place has always been with men, with, with boys, with men. Um, even to this day, when you come to Senegal, when... I'm building, you know, we just finished, we finished building our um, factory maybe two or three years ago, but I'm there. I don't think there's one of the contractors or any, anyone involved in the building that was being uh, a woman. The only time I found a woman and I was so excited is uh, when we came to, when he came down to electricity and then it was a guy who came with his team, but I was so excited to see that one of the, one of his right hands was, was a lady. And I was like, so anyway, it was, but the bottom line is here I was and bossing all of these people and people back home saying, what are you doing to these people? Because even us can't get them to work so fast. <laughs> you know. What? I mean, they were still slacking off. You know, we all know contractors around the world. Contractors have a reputation. But, um, you know, still they were doing much faster, going much faster than no people were used to. And they're like, what are you doing to them? And I don't know. I, I just feel like um, maybe there is a special, there's just, I don't know. I It's easier for me to speak to men oftentimes than it is to women. And um, without making, you know, generalities, I just, I just appreciate the fact that I can speak very, you know, directly and not have to, you know, whatever, not... I, that's that part is another conversation that I think would be interesting about why I prefer why I've always been you know it's it, it seems like I don't have a problem it's not that I prefer but it seems like I don't have a problem working with men when so so many women seem to have I think or, I think you were breaking rules is what well, you were doing I don't know so so there it was every morning they come and then the thing was okay I have a little pack of boys and then so and so wants to go fishing fishing because our fishing really was we take the buckets and we go to the you know we go to the to, to we go to the shore 
which is like a block away from my from my family home and a, a few blocks away and then there what happens is oh um the fishermen are coming back in their little fishermen's boats and we're pretty much going from boat to boat kind of you know begging and annoying people to get <laughs> a fish in a bucket <laughs> so they would give us the fish that maybe got a little bit smashed or whatever all of that stuff or like stuff that whatever and then you know that was fishing for us so we go and we get this stuff but then you know then we would uh once our little bucket had enough in it we we go up because the, sh the, the water is right here then we go a little bit more you know like towards um back towards the village and there we find a little spot we start to make a fire and then uh, you know we ask one of the ladies who takes off the scales from the from the fish to take it off for us and take out the head or whatever and then we go there and we do a little you know we, we put it on the grill we do a little thing and then, then my grandma gives me like some uh, onion sauce and then there we are you know we have a nice meal then we go swim then we go put you no know, sleep on the side <laughs> that was our fish so sometimes they come and they're like so and so wants to go fishing but so and so is like no i want to go play soccer you know, the soccer field, but was across the street. Or so-and-so was like, I want to go do, you know, do the slingshot. We were like, great slingshot. I mean, especially me, but until I had this accident where the the bullet went to hit a, uh, a branch and then came straight back hitting me here. I fell off, you know, all fours up in the air. My friends laughing their asses off. I was like, okay, I'm done with this stuff. We're no longer doing slingshots. But you see, that's the thing. I I was a little bit of an authoritarian though, because when I decided no more slingshot for me, <laughs> we couldn't do slingshots anymore it's like this is over we're done but anyway so when you have people showing up in the morning and you have few like subgroups wanting to do different things yet we're not going to separate we're going to have to find a way to take everybody in the same direction not like kicking and screaming but feeling like it's their decision that was a little art you know that i think i did pretty well so my, my, so so my, you, you learned leadership at six years old. We kept the clan. Yeah, we kept the clan safe. We, everybody was always, by the time we got there, everybody was excited. We were having great days. And, you know, of course, sometimes there's like arguments. And then how do you solve it uh, without necessarily getting the adults involved? So we were doing our own thing. You know, one day I got a big burn on the back of my thigh. Yeah, another day I had a big um, cut at the bottom of my uh, heel on the right hand, on the right foot. Things were happening all the time. And my grandma was not freaking out about any of this stuff. You know, it's like, well, I guess it didn't kill you, so he's going to be stronger, right? And But I never thought about it that way. And so when I arrived in... So this is pretty much the background for me. And I really think it definitely set the rest of the stage for the rest of my life. And also the fact that my grandma was very much, um, you know, she she and I had conversations. I would get in trouble. And she would always take my side in public, but in private, we got to talk about this. What happened over there? And I learned, you know, you tell her the truth. Um, and then we would have to talk about it. And sometimes I would, she would be like, well, I'm glad you did that. And sometimes she'd like, well, that was wrong. And really, I, f I would like for you to think about it. And uh, it would, it's, it's just, you know, not... So she would give me like a little lesson. And sometimes we just agree that, yeah, you think that and I think that and whatever. We'll see. We'll, we'll, we'll check it out next time. But, um, and all, also, but all of this was being done without me ever saying, no, grandma, you're, you're, you're not, you're lying or you, that's not true. See, those things, those words were not part of my vocabulary with her. Yet, I was very like, this is what I think. 
you know, so this idea, and I think this is a problem because too often uh, people think that in uh, irreverence has to mean um, disrespect. The two can happen. You can stand for what you stand for and without certain behavior. And I think uh, the Western world has a big problem with that. I, when I look at how um, American kids, especially because this is who I'm seeing, are raised for the most part, I am often appalled. Not everybody's like that, obviously, but a lot of what I'm seeing, it's just appalling. And um, obviously, and then I've seen a little bit of a ranking, you know, French, European kids in general, I find them to be a little bit more beha better behaved than American. I think American kids are definitely at the, at the complete end of the spectrum when it comes to, you know, respect towards the elders um, and just respect in general. I don't know... At the same time, I'm sitting here wondering, okay, how much does that have to do with the fact that they're also highly innovative people? Is it part of it? Does it come? Is it the future or a bug? Um, but I still, I'm still gonna go with. I think it's a future, but the future doesn't have to be so, so nasty. Yeah. Instead of instead of being, just against things like this, this whole process of of entrepreneurship that you write in the book. It's about constantly breaking rules, but, yeah. but also persuading people. Like exactly. you, you don't, you don't get to um, just insult other people and succeed. You have to, you have to learn that skill. I, I wonder. I, I love to blame our government schools for all sorts of, of behavioral destruction, mm -hmm. and I, I'm sure that that's part of the problem. And even even in our our woke culture, um, there's there's an inability. To disagree yeah. and work things out yes. anymore. And You're that's not what I was, allowed to say certain things. No, but that's what I was going back to earlier when I was saying that uh, my grandma was not getting involved in our arguments. And later, with my parents, same thing. You know, my sisters and I sometimes we get into these big arguments, but it's just like, it's almost like if you go and try to complain to the parents, both of you are punished. Yeah. It's like both of you. It's, we're not taking sides. Both of you. Next time, you fix it among yourselves. Now, of course, if things are really outrageously bad or dangerous, then, of course, you know, you can get them involved. But I think <clears throat> we just, it, it's important to try to let kids um, work things out among themselves. Yeah. And they'll learn very quickly, yeah. you know, um, that you don't catch flies with vinegar. And <laughs> you know what I mean? That um, you have to make things work and that... Um, <clears throat> you can stand for you can stand for yours for your rights, <clears throat> but it doesn't mean that uh, you know you're going to burn all types of bridges because who want then wants to be ostracized or you have to accept maybe sometimes you have certain behaviors, others are going to you know break from you, but you own it. So so I think a lot of it goes back to that. I I see kids who are not able to sort things out and um, even hearing something not nice. It's, it's now hearing something that nice or being sold something nice, that in itself is violence. Right. So, like, uh, you, you know Lenore Skenazi? Yeah, I know of her story. Um, the, the free-range mom. Uh, she's been on the show as well. But I'm, I'm, I'm linking this um, story of, of your, of your free-range years when you were um, breaking things and burning things. <laughs> Including and, myself. Yes. <laughs> And and fast forward all the way to you make it to Silicon Valley. Yes, um, in your twenties, right? Yeah, yeah. So that's that's not easy to do. 
But I think like I, I think there's a, a defense of of letting kids learn how to move forward. Um, and and your path not only to Silicon Valley, but since then it's like fail, 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 succeed. Fail, 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 fail succeed. Yeah. And that's like, um, you know, helicopter parents don't let their kids fail. Yeah, they and don't. And we could be like destroying this, this entrepreneurial nature that I do think I see is, it has always been part of, of American culture. Mm-hmm. And I worry that that's going away. But, but maybe Africa has to step up and save us from ourselves. And that's, um, that's the other theory that I have. Um, once again, at some point, Africa is going to come for the rescue. I think um, American kids... And uh, it's it's terrible for me to talk like this because it's not all American kids, but um, there is definitely a big subset of the American youth population. The ones we're surrounded with, we're very blessed with. And I say surrounded with because, you know, Michael, my husband and I, uh, you know, we have an, um, it's more my, it's more his project, but, you know, I support him and everything and he supports me and everything. Um, it's called the Socratic Experience. And here is very much the place um, where everything is based on agency and, um, you know, this concept of learning through doing and also asking questions. So they use the Socratic method. That's why the Socratic Experience. Actually, one of his students, 16 years old, just, uh, you know, raise money, raise $1.2 million in venture financing. I mean, and others have like customers already. Like this is one kid. He, he figured what he did is he, he looks at all of his influencers on YouTube, right? And then he's thinking, okay, you have all of these musicians, but they have a problem because they don't have an audience. These influencers have an audience and a lot of them actually would love to be musicians. Why not create music for them? They already have the audience. I mean, this kid already has, you know, customers. He's flying around L.A. This is another one. So I'm looking at all of this and I'm like, oh, my God. So this is what's possible. And they give me hope in the future of American kids. But I think parents really, it's time for parents to wake up. This is this is uh, what's going on is, is, is very scary. So what I have seen with um, so many, uh, so many of um, the um, I'm not even sure. I think I lost my thought here, but um, I think. What I'm trying to say is that, yes, I agree with you that the helicopter parenting is probably going to cost us. And this is where I think African kids, this is where I was going, African kids are going to eat this lunch. But I don't believe in a zero-sum game. So all I'm going to say is maybe we'll give them the little spark. Well, I think, so yeah, I I talk about this a lot. I think that that the reason that... um, we don't believe so much in in personal responsibility and liberty and and productivity and entrepreneurship in this country is that we're kind of victims of our own success and, it costs, and, yeah. and we are so fat and happy and we're so rich yeah. and i think i think we've we've let the institutional structures that that allowed right. for that that's right so i think it, it's fixable yes the same way that africa is fixable and it's yeah. not it's not a problem with the kids no it's not a problem with yeah. with where it's, we're born or the color the of our skin. That's yeah. I I I blame even with the kids. I blame the environment yeah. because if you have an environment that doesn't allow you to test and fail, and yeah, burn yourself. I mean, I know it's not ideal, but you know, uh, if you don't have an environment in which you can really um, push yourself, test yourself, explore, figure things out, 
um, learn that it's actually easier to collaborate, it's better to collaborate with people than it is to make everybody upset and mad at you. You're going to learn those lessons. And actually, very quickly, kids are amazing. Kids are amazing when they put their minds to something. But we got to give them the environment to do that. So again, I go back to the environment. So when I say kids this, kids that, really what I should say is the environment that the kids are being put in. And so that's also where the hope is. And I think um, a lot of educators now are getting onto this bandwagon, um, you know, including the one for, you know, the Socratic experience. But um, the more, and that's why the, the school choice movement I have welcomed it with such, you know, warmth and excitement because I think this is uh, about putting the right environment around, again, around kids so that, you know, they can be the amazing people that they were born like because I believe all the kids are born, you know, with just everything that they need in there. Each one of them can be different, but each one of them came with what they need. And the, the environment allows them to make the most of their, you know, themselves it's going to happen as well. I want to go back to a story that you touched on in your personal story, but the question of migration and immigration. Mm. And you know, in this country, the, the question of illegal immigration coming across our southern border is a, is a politically divisive, um, destructive issue. Everybody, everybody has a position. Um, same thing's happening in Africa. And families, your family, did the extraordinary thing. They left you behind yeah. because they couldn't figure out a way mm-hmm. to keep you fed where they were and they had mm-hmm. to go somewhere else mm-hmm. where they could find jobs mm-hmm. and prosperity. Mm-hmm. Um, nobody wants to do that. Nope. But that's that's a problem in Africa and Europe, uh, far, I think yeah. far bigger than, than our, oh, our yeah, problem. Yeah. If you made it this far into the show, it means I must be doing something right. Kibbe on Liberty is just one of the amazing products we created for the people. We tell emotionally compelling stories and produce educational videos for the Liberty Curious. Our award-winning documentaries personalize all things Liberty, independence, creativity, hard work, integrity, and perseverance. After the show, check out our work at freethepeople.org. And if you like what you see, donate to support what we do. That's freethepeople.org. Now back to the show. Oh, yeah. Um, just uh, two days ago. No, yesterday. It was yesterday Sunday. Yes, yeah, so it's yes, no, Saturday morning. I think it was. Yesterday was Saturday morning. I um, posted. I hesitate posting these things, but I think it's important. I posted about uh, this little island on the southern tip of um, Italy called Lampedusa. <sighs> Lampedusa. The waters around that island is basically the graveyard to so many African people. Um, In 2003 already, um, no, in 2013 already, you had, there's a town in Senegal called uh, um, um, Caroy-sur-Mer. And half of the young men, especially of a village, gone themselves into boats tried to cross over and they died right around there Lampedusa it was such a big tragedy that even the Queen of Spain many people like that made it to Lampedusa to actually do a uh, symbolic burial because there was nobody obviously 
um, because they were in the ocean. But um, yeah, that was in 2014. This week, this past week, Lampedusa again. They talk about they talked about this just because this one was another major one, but every month or so, it's just people are coming. And basically, it's an island of six or seven thousand people normally, and I think uh, they got more people from Africa that came all at once than there are people on the island. And so they're freaking out. Everybody's freaking out so much that Van der Leyen, you know, uh, the EU big chief, came down to have a joint uh, conference with Giorgia Meloni, PM of um, Italy to kind of because the Italians are freaking out. And they also know that uh, the EU knows that in unless they do something about this, that they had to show their face on this because the EU is at risk right now. Why is the EU at risk? Is because it uh, they're soon going for parliamentary you know elections. And it does look like the diverse rights of the different, different country mem- member countries are probably going to win. And when they win, um, some of them are probably maybe going to work on really cracking down seriously the immigration rules of the EU, if they stay within the EU, or maybe start to say that immigration is no longer something that um, the EU cont- uh, uh, has a supervision on on behalf of a member country. So meaning that from now on, each country is going to have its own, going back to having its own immigration rules and not have to um, respond or um, yeah, respond to the EU in terms of what are the rules. So something is going to change. But the EU, as it has the grip on immigration uh, regulations and laws in the region, is going to change. And so that's, I believe, the only reason why um, van der Leyen showed, showed her face. I'm yeah. sure of it. Now, the thing is, you see, so that's happening there. You have uh, in Grand Canary Islands, many boats. Basically me, every single day now, Every single day. And this is new because it used to be every month or so that I would hear about this, which was already bad. But now it's every single day in my own Senegalese news. And I bet you it's the same in Ivory Coast. In Mal- You're seeing people who are basically, there is a story of a boat that has been rescued or, t- you know, something bad happened. People are died, died or um, they got uh, the smugglers got arrested and this many people were on the boat every day now. It is accelerating. So what I'm seeing with that is, and then in Europe, so what you're having now is uh, the governments of Europe are radically, you know, like the face of government is changing. I do believe that Marine Le Pen in France, um, who is the far right, is probably going to be elected at some point president of France. You know, uh, the party of Zemmour is making very good uh, progress as well. So it's be- because of this, because of this, be- because, because of, of the this. disruption yeah, of migration, me- disruption of migration. In um, in the U.S., as you said, we have this country is so polarized and immigration is definitely a big, big polarizing topic and yeah. issue. Now, here I am. And uh, it's not just, by the way, Europe or in, 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 the, in, the, in, in America. Within Africa, there is a BBC, um, a BBC clip that's going BBC Africa clip that's making the, the that's making the the round in uh, black in black Twitter right now mm-hmm. in Africa Twitter. Um, South Africans are racist. So basically, you have um, 
this uh, this organization called Dudula, or maybe I'm not getting the name right, something called Dudula, and basically it's an organization that up till now, it's basically an organization that cracks down on uh, um, foreign on foreigners, but the foreigners are very specific. They're other African foreigners. So black South Africans who are cracking down on other black Africans because they're foreigners and they put all the ills of their, con- of their country on these people. Uh, when you have... You, we and, have and South Africa, at least, has been relatively prosperous compared to the surrounding yes, countries. Yes, and that's why people are so trying to so go there. They're, they're yeah, so going they, where they think they're they going where they think they're going to get something. Yeah, yeah. Or they're going to some of those northern African nations that are also doing better than most sub-Saharan African nations, than many sub-Saharan African nations. Yeah. So when, the, when uh, Senegalese, for example, this has been in the news recently, uh, even the Tunisian government basically calling us horrible names and saying that we need to be kicked out, and actually Tunisia effectively um, pushing our people away into the desert. Yeah. <laughs> so basically, they, they catch us and they release us in the desert. This is the story right now that's happening. So, to come back to the US or to come back to the EU? But maybe I'll just stick to the US for now. But I have the same problem with the EU. I look at these politicians. Whether they're from the right or from the left. And I, I am disappointed. To say the least. I say none of you truly cares about us. About us, the immigrants. And in this case, I'm talking about the immigrants that are the ones that are on the other side of the wall, if it's in the U.S., and other side of um, the Lampedusa wall also they have in that Ita- in, on this Italian um, island. You guys, really, you all talk about us, the migrants. And you go to war. But none of you truly cares. And let's face it, what we are for you, we're peons. We're peons, we're Political peons. Alex, pawns and... Pawns. Um, is it uh, pawns you say? Okay. Yeah, politi- that's, what me, that's English only my fourth language. So what I mean is we're your political pawns. English is almost my first language. So <laughs> yes. you, you're doing fine. Okay, thank you. No, but we are your political pawns. Right. The migrants are your political pawns. The mi- I, th- I think about this. I, I want to I ask you if this is true in, in Europe because I think it's the same thing. Because I see, um, you know, two two caricatures, and this just played out in New York City with our with our illustrious mayor there, yeah, who said that he was a sanctuary city, and the and the Democratic Party, the left, says that they care about immigrants, but they don't they don't care about immigrants at all. They want the political points, and they want to control their vote yeah. when they get to the United States, um, and that this gets to your solution because I think I think you have the the only real solution to this problem, um, and and too many Republicans think that you can build a wall and stop people from coming to America to work, um, and none of them are actually asking the question. And by the way, Mexico is also trying to stop the flow in its southern border. Yeah, in its southern border. It's the same thing everywhere. Yeah. The, the question is, um, Why? How, do, how, do we, how do we make it so that people want to stay home? Because no, they do. Yeah, that's the thing. I mean... So the reason why I say that 
we are the political pawns and I'm going to I'm going to even, you know, say it exactly the way I see it. We are the political currency. We are a currency. Us the migrants are a currency for both sides of a political spectrum. And the reason why I say that is because none of them truly cares about us. Why do I say that? Because the people who say, let's build the wall. I mean, I know what you think already. That's fine. You At least you're not telling me that you care about me. But and, and I appreciate that. I appreciate the honesty. Stay away. But then you have the other side. The side that says, we, we open our doors, like this mayor you're talking about. And um, Senator Warren, and I have, some, I have a message for her when I'm done here. They say, oh, we're a sanctuary city. We want, you guys, we want you guys to come in. You don't care about me either. Because just like when I asked, why is Africa so poor? And I have the two factions, non-Africans and Africans, they come up with all types of reasons, but no one pointing to the, to the, to the real root cause, which is the lack of economic freedom, which effectively prevents entrepreneurs from creating the prosperity and the jobs. Here, I hear no one focusing on to truly care about these people is to know, especially here, I'm talking about the mid to long term, is to know that at the end of the day, given a choice, and that's a key word here, given a choice, most of these people would never, never want to do this. Given a choice, none of them would put their children under these, under these extreme conditions. I can't even begin to imagine, and Lord knows, I have been on the other end of the phone, sometimes and the whole night, talking to a mom who is about to get into a boat with her baby and me trying to talk her out of it. Or a young guy to whom I've been talking to for every time I go back to Senegal, he lives in the village where we are and he keeps telling me, he's like, Magat, you need to help me migrate. But I know what's going to happen to him. But what they tell you is heartbreaking because they said, this, that's better than the conditions we're in here. And I don't, who can blame them? So it takes something extraordinary for people to, especially as a group, to uproot themselves from their land, their community, their homes, their families. That's, it's crazy. And especially doing it in a way that you know, you have high chances of not making it to the other side. Or worse yet, sending your child with someone because in your mind, you're saving them from whatever it is that they're leaving behind. So don't, shouldn't we ask ourselves, what the heck is going on over there? Why is it that they're all trying to leave? And what can be done about it? I see none of them doing it. And this is a problem. And worse yet, not only don't I see them doing it, especially the people who claim to care, but on top of that, when we are doing the work of bettering our circumstances, who do I see showing up? 
with their out-of-touch attitude and completely rotten thinking because they're stuck in ideology and they claim they're doing this in the name of, of people, but they're really doing what they're doing in the name of ideology because if it was not ideology, then I would think that they would have changed their thoughts. And who am I talking about here? I'm talking about Elizabeth Warren. Why do I have a problem with this woman right now? Right now. Because in Honduras, there is a place where people have set up one of these zones we're talking about. It's called Prospera. What they have done is put in place an environment where the business environment is better than Singapore. PricewaterhouseCoopers measured this. Which means this is a place where Hondurans can do business. This is a place where Honduras can, Hondurans can get better job so that they don't have to be part of these caravans that are on their way to the U.S. for a better life. They can stay home, build a life, grow their communities, and keep their dignity and their pride and their lives, I would say. Do you know what Elizabeth Warren is doing right now? She signed a letter saying that she's siding with the government of Honduras in de facto ex trying to expropriate everyone at Prospera, all the businesses that are there, everything. And all of this was signed, their contracts. And the people who are in Prospera, you can go there, the Hondurans working there, very happy to be there. But Elizabeth Warren goes in cahoot with the government and this is why I make the differentiation here. I'm not saying the Hondurans. I'm saying the government of Honduras. And this is where I would like to really challenge people like her in thinking again. It is not because you supposedly are supporting some of these governments of ours in supposedly what they think is right. Because if the situation has showed anything, it has showed that many of these governments all over the continent in Africa, the, oftentimes one of the culprits that come up when you ask people why we're so poor, they say, our leaders are bad. They're bad leaders. They don't care about us. They don't have our best interests in mind. Yet, this is who the U.S. government tries to back. What about what's best for the ordinary Honduran? What about what's best for the ordinary Senegalese? What's best for the ordinary um, uh, uh, Ivory Coast person? She needs to be very careful. History will not be gentle on her. And so right now, what she's supporting is not in the best interest of the, Hon of the ordinary Honduran. And it's too easy for her to say, oh, we're just, uh, because we're not imperialist, we, we have to respect what the Honduran government, you know, wants, in this case, expropriate people. So she's doing two things when she's doing this. It's too easy for you to hide behind the fact that you are supposedly supporting, in this case, the Honduran government with what they want. Because oftentimes we know what the government wants is not in line with what the ordinary people want. But she always claimed that she's there for the people. This is very strange. Number two, 
what type of precedent are you setting up when you do not respect property rights? Because that's what you're doing when you're expropriating somebody, even though a contract exists. What type of precedent are you creating? And do you know, most importantly, what it's going to mean for Hondurans? Because if I'm an investor next time, trying to do business in Honduras, do you really think I'm going to set up my business in Honduras? Knowing that anytime a government shows up, whatever it is that they believe in, they're just going to expropriate me. And the U.S. says, yeah, we think it's right. No, I think what's going on here is she's doing all of this because of ideology. And you see, that's my problem. If this, if this government was probably in favor of business and everything, you probably would never have seen her over there, you know, like saying we're siding with them. So you see, Matt, my problem is they say they care about us. They care about people, us, the people. They don't care about us, the people. They care about their ideology and whatever or whoever supports their ideology is what they're going to go for, even if it means the people die in the process. So what does Elizabeth Warren want from us? What does she want from us? We're trying to do the right thing in our countries and she comes and tries to destroy it. And then if we can't do that back home, we're going to try to come to a place where we can have a life. But then when we come here, at first, they say, oh, come in. And then they're like, oh, you're invading us. Like, um, you know, the mayor in New York City. So I really, I, I'm going to try to be gentle with her, but I really want to know what does she want from us? And who really is she, who is she working? What is she working for? It has to be clear. It really has to be clear. I will have more respect for her if she said, you know, this ideology is what I believe in. And just that's the way it is. And I understand some people are very much into the ideology. But she cannot use us, the people, in this case migrants, real people, flesh and bone people, to serve her deadly ideology because it's really a deadly one. So that's what I had to say to her. And it's still time for her to rethink. It's still time for her to do the right thing. I'm not holding my breath. But I really would like for her to reconsider this. I did not realize she signed that letter. Um, and I have to say, it. I mean, for context, for people that don't know, the Honduran government just elected a guy that's essentially a Marxist. A woman, yeah. Um, a woman. Um, so, so women can be Marxist too, I, I think guess. She's, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but so this, this, this gets to the, the fact is it's ideology. Um, but it's also political power. I mean, that's what you were political currency. They're 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 viewing migrants as political currency, and she'd rather have that power. I'm afraid it's more cynical than some gauzy Marxist ideology that she thinks is the right thing to do. And this is why I, I want to tease this out because for anybody that cares about people and understands the basic economics of why people would leave everything behind. The solution is not more walls. The solution is not sanctuary cities. The solution is let's focus a little bit on on helping those countries um, escape socialism, escape. Um, I mean, I think in Honduras, a big part of it is the war on drugs. That is our fault and responsibility. Um, but you're, you're offering the, the magic key to everything, which is freedom. It's not that hard. 
and 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 when it comes to even Honduras, although Honduras capital murder of a world, because that's how it's known. Prospera still set shop there, and still attracting companies, jobs. I mean, so it even there, even in the face of violence, it is proven that if you can put businesses in place, things are not going to happen overnight. But that's definitely the path, the path, the pathway. And so, this is what I mean. So for me, even let's just remove ideology aside, because sometimes I think people get caught up in we, we socialism is bad capitalism is good let's just remove this and let's try to go again to where i think no decent person would argue do you believe or not that entrepreneurship is a good thing that people should be able to start and build businesses for the most part, 80% of businesses are small and medium-sized enterprises. So I'm not even talking about the multinationals, but that too can become muddy for some people. But just stay with me. Small, medium-sized enterprises, which is in any solid, viable economy, they're the backbone of the economy. We're talking about your baker. We're talking about the lady who is making natural organic skincare products. We're talking about a school, you know, a little private school. We're talking about, you know, a hospital. We're talking about um, a printing shop. We're talking about, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about a beverage company. We're talking about, that's what we're talking about. And together, all of these Companies are creating all of these jobs, supporting all of these communities, and life is happening and people are thriving. Do we or do we not agree that it should only be fair and right for people to be able to start and run such businesses? And if you say yes, which I think most people will say yes to, then we have a problem and that's where we need to start, period. And she is saying no to that. That's it. Remove the word socialism, remove capitalism. All I'm talking about is do you believe it should be as easy for any entrepreneur in Honduras or any entrepreneur in Africa to do, to start and run a business as easy it is for any entrepreneur in anywhere in, say, Scandinavia. Do you believe those two people should have the same right? Do you believe that the African entrepreneur should, it would, should be so as easy for them to start a business than it is for the Scandinavian entrepreneur? And if you tell me yes, then we've got big work to do because it is not the case right now. You want to talk about inequality? That's an inequality that's been killing us, literally killing us. And she's saying no to that because that's all Prospera did. Saying, we are going to make sure you get the best operating software. You get the same, if not better, operating software than the people in Scandinavia have. What's wrong with that? What's wrong with that? Unless you don't understand what the heck is going on and then actually you should then stay away from us. Because not only you don't get it, but you're actually taking active steps that are really going to be bad for us.
but but everyday Hondurans have no idea what's going on and how maybe if they succeeded this Mrs. Warren Elizabeth Warren is condemning them for generations to come because if this goes through entrepreneurs and investors around the world are looking they're waiting to see what's going to happen and if it happens they'll say well Honduras is not a good bet. We should not put our money there. We should not start a business there. And Hondurans themselves will say that. I should not start a business here because I will be expropriated at any moment. And it seems like you have crazy people in the U.S. who support this. This is not even good for the U.S. This, is, this goes against everything we believe in, in terms of uh, a contract is a contract. Property rights is important, is vital. You know, rule of law, all of that. We basically, once again, they're speaking on both sides of a mouth. Rule of law, rule of law, property rights, property rights, all we want, and then this. So I will leave it to that. But again, my message for her is, it is still time to do the right thing. I don't know what motivates her to do this. I'm going to be generous with what I think motivates her. But maybe not, I'm not going to be generous. But uh, yeah, so I needed to say this because it's been weighing on my heart. Because they're always, you know, and see, this is another thing, Matt. The reason why, in a way, I'm more like um, a libertarian is because what I found is, you see, the left promotes policies that keep me poor. And then the right laughs at me because I'm poor. And none of them cares. And that's the problem. That's a perfect way to close this conversation. Yeah. I wish you would get fired up about this. Get a little little passion in your voice. (laughs) No, but Elizabeth Warren is... But you see, this is how they do things that are detrimental to us, and no one thinks about it. What what they're doing right now, and we're fighting fighting it with everything we've got, and I think think it's going to work out. But um, it's just the, the craziest thing I've ever seen. The practical pitch, and this is what I want to get at, for people that that care about the, the humanitarian disaster at our border, and, and we could talk more perhaps to conservatives, because I do think that the left very much views migrants as political pawns. Yeah. They, they want their votes, they want to own them and control them, but they don't actually care about what's happening as these families desperately try to get to someplace safer and more prosperous. Um, but I... I want to I want to appeal to conservatives who very much think that we should close our border and say let's look at the conditions that are creating this desperation and and lean on these principles we've been talking about for the last hour which is freedom and entrepreneurship and contract and personal responsibility that to me is the only way to fix this problem it in is. in a humane and honest way. Yeah. Okay, so where do we where do we get this book? Um, Amazon, as well as megatwade.com. And uh, yeah. Do we get extra prizes if we go to megatwade.com? <laughs> I am thinking uh, you, you probably will have something special. Yes. All right. Yes. And uh, what else do we need to know? Where do we find you? And it's, is your TED Talk, by the way, has it been resurfaced? Because I know there was all that monkey business with it. Because oh. I tell everybody, <laughs> if you want full Magat, you got to watch that TED Talk. I think you scared those people. 
They'd, they'd never heard the truth before, perhaps. I don't know. And you know what is interesting is because um, you look at all the TED Talks and um, I think it's probably the only TED Talk that talks about this. Yeah. And yet, you know, I'm sure. No, so the, the TED Talk, I would like for it to go back, you know, to come back to the forefront and hopefully it will. So there, I have a, um, a main TED Talk which is called Why It's So Hard to Do Business in Africa. But you can also find a link to it on my website at magatwade.com. And um, and I was told to tell people how to write it. M-A-G-A-T-T-E-W-A-D-E.com. That's how you get there. But um, the the thing with... Um, yeah, the I would like for the TED talk to come back up because I really think people, when people hear it, they're like, wow, it makes sense. I, yeah. I didn't think about it this way, but it totally makes sense. And the other place where you can find me is on everywhere on social media. I'm at Magat W, M-A-G-A-T-T-E-W. Um, that's my handle on social media. Yeah, so. And you did you did an epic uh, session with Lex Friedman? <laughs> yes, I did, um, I did uh, Lex Friedman. Was, was it a full six hours? God help no, us. No, 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 no. I think uh, ours was maybe three hours something yeah. like that around more so, or less so a quick listen yeah yeah it was normally a quick listen we had really a great time and that's the thing you know there's just so many things to talk about and another conversation about this because i have been doing so much more research on this just like the same way they imported the west um imported the concept of, con of colonialism to africa same thing when it comes to um how women have had to take a step back in society you know because that's when they came and they said oh we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna um, civilize you you poor schmucks they brought that concept with them the whole puritan concept of women in the back women this women covered all that stuff it was them not us so even there so i for me i'm i'm so interested in everything that comes pre-colonial Africa. See, for most people, the story of Africa starts with slavery and then moves on, you know, colonization and to present day. But very few people stop and rem remember and realize, whoa, no, 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 African people, there was some really interesting stuff going on back then. And when, when you start looking there, you start to see that, yeah, mo many Africans, most Africans were free marketeers. They were free enterprise people. This whole concept of uh, even price control did not exist or um, who gets to decide who uh, grows what crop? Not for us. All of this is an import. It's a colonialist import, you know? And it's, it's just fascinating. So as far as I'm concerned, I am telling all my fellow Africans and people who are not African, who care about the world, to really join me on uncovering that past, seeing how it ties to now and the future, because I really believe that leapfrogging is Africa is going to leapfrog. Why? Because we have no other choice. The time for catching up is over. We have to leapfrog or disappear. Thank you. Welcome. Join the cheetah generation. That's my thing. You need t-shirts, by the way. Oh, for cheetah generation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to get some. But you guys have to help me design it because you, you guys are good uh, designers. We'd love to do that. Okay. Because. Well. Cheetahs are clearly libertarians. There's no. They doubt really about that. are, right? I mean, they're the ultimate libertarians. Yes. I like that. <laughs> this is gonna be fun. Yes. Thank you. Thanks for watching. If you liked the conversation, make sure to like the video, subscribe, and also ring the bell for notifications. And if you want to know more about Free the People 
go to freethepeople.org.